0: George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, once said, You see things, and you say, Why? But I dream things that never were, and I say, Why not? One of my favorite magazines is Fast Company Magazine. I love Fast Company Magazine because it's all about startups, it's about innovation, uh, it's about businesses, nonprofits, and, and really what it is, it's dreams that have become reality. It's people that have, have sat back and thought, what would this look like if? And, and because of those dreams that they have, they've, they've made the steps and taken the steps to, to make these dreams become reality. Now, part of the reason I think I love Fast Company is because I'm a dreamer. I, I like to dream about what can be. When, when it comes to my personal life, when it comes to my family, when it comes to the church that I'm a part of and working with, when it, it comes to the community that I live in, I want to be innovative. I want to take those dreams, and I want to make them come true. I want them to become reality. But I'm sure I'm not the only dreamer here. I guess everybody in this room has dreams. Now, not the I ate some bad sushi last night kind of dreams, but the the dreams about your future. You have dreams about yourself personally. You have dreams about your, your family, about your marriage, about your kids about your career, about your life. Every single one of us have dreams. But even though we have these dreams, how many of us really make them come to fruition? How many of us really make them become reality? Because maybe we haven't asked the right questions. Like, how do I make that happen? What's the starting point? What are the first steps that I have to take to make this dream become what I want it to become? Because here's what we know about Dreams. Dreams take decisions that you and I have to make. And when we make those decisions, change happens. Our lives are different when we begin to make decisions to live out those dreams. Those dreams become reality. But I'm afraid for many of us, there's something that's holding us back. And over the next few moments, we're going to talk about what that looks like. What is it that keeps us where we are? What keeps us stuck in the place we are so that our dreams do not become reality. Today we're going to look at a story. We actually find it in three books of the Bible. We find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Let me give you a little Bible structure first before we keep going this morning. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you notice, they are all in the New Testament for one, uh, but they're part of the first four books, the books we call the Gospels. Gospel means good news. There's no Christian special word there. That's just the word back in the day for good news, so it's good news. And so we have those four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in some of the stories that they tell. In fact, some of the stories are verbatim. Uh, these three Gospels are known as the Synoptic Gospels. Way too much information, I know, but take and leave it if you want it. But, but we have these three books. Now, why do they have very similar stories in them? Why are there stories that are the same in all three? Well, over the centuries, scholars have put it together that Mark was written first. And so Mark was written first, and then if you look at the book of Mark and then Matthew and Luke, what you'll find with Matthew and Luke is that about 40 to 50 percent of the stories in Matthew and Luke are coming from the book of Mark. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, why would they do that? They're they're kind of plagiarizing from someone else. No, they're not. They're historians. And so Matthew and Luke were doing like what any historian would do, like Mark did. And they would go out and find people that had first-hand hand experiences with Jesus. Like, hey, we heard that you had this connection with Jesus. Tell me that story. Oh, great. Do you have anybody that can back that up? you have an eyewitness? Oh, you do. Let me talk to them. And so they would begin to put these stories together about the teachings and the life of Jesus. And then what they would do, they would go out and they would say, okay, what do we have that's already written? What's already there? So that's where Mark comes in. And so we have these stories in Mark that they had heard from somebody else and they went to Mark and they like, okay, great, we can use that. And so that's why we have these stories that we find in all three of those books are shared between a couple of them. Again, these are called the Synoptic Gospels. And the story we're going to look at today we find in all three books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we're going to look at it in Mark and Luke because here's the cool thing we get to do. We can take those stories and begin to piece the the pieces together, it's like a puzzle, and we can find out more about the story, more about what's happening when we do that. And so this morning, we're going to look at two books, we're going to look at Mark and Luke, Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be. I know some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, uh, how am I going to do this between the pages? You can hold your Bible if you want to, you can follow along that way, we'll put it up here on the screens, it's on our Journey Church app, where you can follow along on our program today. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. And we're going to start with Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. Capernaum is a fishing village on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. During this time period, there were about 1,500 people who lived there. Uh, This is where Peter was from. But this was also known as JC Headquarters. This was Jesus Christ Headquarters. This was the the place, not really, I've just made that up. But this is the place that he would go back to to kind of catch his breath, breathing room. This is the place Jesus would go to have his breathing room, to catch his breath, to to hang out with some close friends, uh, maybe even to do some fundraising. I mean, this was a place that Jesus would go back to, and he would go back there, but... But because Jesus had become such a celebrity, people were always following him. I mean, he, he's big news. If TMZ were around back then, they wouldn't be following the Kardashians. They would be following Jesus everywhere he would go. And so he would go into these towns, and people would hear that he was going to be there. And so what would they do? They'd show up. And so these populations of 1,500 could swell to a few thousand people because they've heard the stories of Jesus. People have told them about the miracles that he's done. And so they would show up there because they wanted to see and hear for themselves. And we find that is happening right here in this story. Jesus is there, and this is probably Peter's home that Jesus is in, and he's, he's teaching. There's so many people there. These homes are small that, that not everybody could get in. There were people outside trying to hear what Jesus had to say. So there were those individuals there, but there was another group of people there, too. Let's go over to Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Not only do we have... Normal people like you and I there, but there were these religious leaders there, and, and they weren't there for the same purpose. They weren't there to hear. They weren't there to learn. They weren't there to grow in their faith. They were there because one, they were jealous. Some of their followers had begun to follow Jesus, and so they had lost some of the people that that used to listen to them. And so there was a pride issue that was a part of this. And, and then the other reason is they were critics. Not like, hey, I'm a critic. I'm writing for the Jerusalem Times. I want to tell a little bit about your story. Now, this was very different. This was, hey, we're going to catch you doing something or saying something that's not right. And that means we can get rid of you. And if we get rid of you, here's the cool part. Then all of those people who are following you, now they'll come back to us. Again, this pride issue is there. And so we have them there. They're they're there not to help, not to be uh, there to listen. They're there because they're looking to cause problems with Jesus. Let's stay there in Luke chapter 5, verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. We have this paralyzed man. We don't know what happened to him, uh, an accident of some sort. Uh, he could have fallen, a chariot spill. I mean, we, we don't have any idea how this took place, but, but he's hurt and he's paralyzed. And yet we find there are these men who want to help him. These are his friends. Here's what they know. They know Jesus is in town. And they want to take their friend there because they figure maybe if Jesus sees our friend, he can heal him. He can help him out. He can make it so he's not paralyzed anymore. And so they go to this home, again, potentially Peter's home, to have Jesus heal him. But when they get there, what's the problem? The house is full. There's no room for them To walk through to carry him in. Now, in the book of Mark, it says that four guys are carrying him, but it also talks about some men there. So there's probably a pretty good sizable group of friends that are with him, not just the four. Let's go back to Mark, chapter 2, verse 4. It says they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Uh, Do you know what we learn right here in the story? is these guys, these men, they're not UVA grads. They're Virginia Tech grads because they're engineers, all right? <laughs> they know what they got to do. Like, hey, we're going to go up there and we're going to put a hole in, in the, the roof and, and we're going to lower our friend down. Now, now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that seems kind of strange. Wouldn't that have been hard to do? The homes in those days, were, were, again, were, were very small. And so your roof was really additional living space. And so people would go up there, and and maybe you'd have a dinner up there. You'd hang out with your friends up there, have a barbecue up there, uh, get a suntan up there, smoke some hookah up there, um, sleep. Some people would even sleep up there. I mean, this is what you would do right there on the roof. And so this was just another part of the home. Now you're thinking, well, how do you get the guy up there? Do they Spider-Man up the wall? Do they climb a rope like gym class? No, there were stairs. And so you would walk up the stairs, and you would get to the top of the roof. The top of the home, and so they would go up there, and then they started to peel this away. Now, it's not concrete, all right? It's um, it's branches and, and leaves, and there's wooden beams, and then you have clay and mud. It was very sturdy, but it wouldn't have been too hard to dig a hole through it. And so they dug this hole in it, and they lowered their friend down to the feet of Jesus. Now, let's go back to Luke chapter five, verse twenty. Seeing their faith. Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Every time I read that, I wonder what happened when Jesus said those words. Because he says that a lot to people, right? Did the people start twitching a little bit? Heads start spinning? Pea soup comes spewing out of the mouth? I mean, you wonder. He says those words, Your sins are forgiven. So everybody's standing there, sitting there, and what are they doing? probably real quiet at that moment maybe the paralyzed man is there and he looks up at jesus and kind of smiles like (laughs) what's going on because nothing happens does it nothing happens when jesus says those words nothing happens externally in that moment look at verse 21 luke 5 But the pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves who does he think he is that's blasphemy only god can forgive sins I'm sure Jesus began in this quiet moment after he says your sins are forgiven. I'm sure he begins to hear this this muttering, some grumbling, and he knows who it is. It's the religious leaders, and and in that moment they look at him like hey, you can't say that you're not God. Now let me give you a little bit of background about the Pharisees and these religious leaders that are there. Uh, the Pharisees were basically a, a fraternal organization, you know, minus all the cool little handshake things that you do for those groups. Their focus was the law. And their job was to make sure that you followed the law verbatim. In fact, whether you liked it or not, you were part, if you were Jewish, you were part of a Jewish accountability group that you didn't invite yourself into or somebody didn't invite you into. Because these guys would walk around, there's about 6,000 of them them at this time. They would walk around, they'd they'd point out, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Don't you know the Mosaic law? Hey, that's one of the Ten Commandments. You're breaking it. This was their job. It was like their parents. Your parents are around you all the time telling you all the bad things you're doing. But this is what they believed. This is who they were. In fact, they had this idea that if every Jewish male followed every single rule and law on the exact same day, that Messiah would come back. I mean, this is who they were. This is the life that they led. Then we have the teachers of the law. These were the scribes. They were basically the PhDs of that day. They, they memorized scripture. They, they knew the law. They argued the law. They developed new traditions based on the law. This is what they did every day. And so the Pharisees would actually follow a scribe. A scribe would say, hey, I want to mentor you. Or a Pharisee would say, hey, would you, would you coach me? And you would become just like that scribe because you would follow them. You would listen to them. You would learn from them. And so we have these two groups of people that are there that particular day when this is happening there in that home. They're there trying to find out if Jesus is going to break one of the laws. And what does Jesus do? In their mind, Jesus breaks one of the laws. Because one of the laws says never equate yourself to God. And what is Jesus doing? He's equating himself to God. Now granted, he is God. They don't know that but that's the tension that we find between the religious leaders and Jesus throughout all of his ministry look at verse 22, Luke 5 Jesus knew what they were thinking so he asked them why do you question this in your hearts is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk what if after church today you went to the Kingstown Panera it's been remodeled, looks pretty nice if you've been there but now you walk in, you don't go up to tell somebody what you want for the most part. They, they have the little iPads there for you to, to put in your order, right? And so what if after church today, you go there for lunch with your friends or your family, and you start punching in, you know, your information for the day, and, and somebody else walks in beside you. And you just leaned over like, hey, and they're like, what? Hey, your sins are forgiven. How do you think that person would respond right there in that moment? Maybe they'd laugh at you. That would be maybe the best thing they could do. Maybe they would go and run and grab the manager, grab the cops, maybe punch you. I don't know. But, but in that moment, you're just telling them something like, you're crazy. That doesn't mean anything. Here in our story, in this moment, Jesus says, hey, what would be easier? It would be easy to say your sins are forgiven. Why? We can't see anything externally, right? What's harder is to say, get up and walk. Look at verse 24, Luke 5. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, it's my favorite part of the story, the man in this translation jumped, doesn't say like he took his time, he's like, oh, help me up. He jumped up. Picked up his mat and went home praising God. And you know, when I see that part of this story, it, it is hard to, to prove that someone's sins are forgiven. But it's even harder to miss a miracle. It's hard to prove sins are forgiven, but it's even harder to miss a miracle. Right there in that moment, Jesus tells this paralyzed man who's been incapacitated for who knows how long, he's laying there on that mat, and Jesus says, all right, dude, get up. And so if Jesus is able to tell this man to get up, and he not only gets up, he jumps up, then isn't it possible Jesus is also able to forgive his sins? Look at Luke 5, 26. Everyone... Was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, "We have seen amazing things today." Well, what's the impact of this miracle? You know what the impact is: change lives, change lives. All, all the people that are there, that are spectators in that moment, who are listening to Jesus, do you think their lives are changed? Oh yeah, it, it's quite likely that they knew this man, especially if this man had a large group of other people with him. Then he may have been a prominent figure within that community. And so people would have seen that, known him, known his life, maybe even known what happened, the accident that occurred that that caused him to be paralyzed. And so here he is, he's paralyzed, and all of a sudden he's able to get up and walk. Do you think those people would look at their life differently because of Jesus? Yeah. Their life had been changed because of that. I mean, they, they say so here. They were gripped with great wonder and awe. Those men who brought him in, do you think their lives were changed? Oh, yeah. Now, Jesus says you have faith, and they did have faith, but... Let's just be honest. You and I have faith, right? But there's kind of that faith, and then right behind it, there's a little bit of doubt, like, eh, I'm not quite sure. I'm going to keep taking the step forward. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see what happens. I'm sure there's a little bit of doubt there. And then all of a sudden, he's able to get up and walk. He jumps up, and he walks. Yeah, their lives were changed. And definitely the paralyzed man. Again, we don't know if this is months, years, decades that he has been in that state lying there paralyzed and now all of a sudden he's able to get up jump up and walk out of that home i would say his life's changed pharisees the, the teachers of the law yeah we can't really say a whole lot about them were their lives changed maybe later on in life but in this moment we find that the impact of this miracle is that there are changed lives there and they're all due to the power of jesus your question may be what does this have to do with dreams what is the connection between this story and dreams well here's what i'll say i imagine that all those friends they had dreams about their buddy they they wanted the life that they used to have with him that they dreamed about what that could be like to to hang out with him to go to spend time in the city with him to go sheep tipping with him just to, to be with him again like they used to be that's what they were looking for I don't know if you can sheep tip, but it sounds like a kind of cool thing. Um, but then I think that's part of what they were looking for. That's the dreams they had. That's why they brought him to Jesus. But, but then you have this, this, paralyzed, this paralyzed man. He's got dreams, right? Or or He did. Maybe when he was younger, he dreamed about his future. He dreamed about his relationships. He, he dreamed about a family and a career. And, and now all that came crashing to a halt with, with whatever happened to him to, to paralyze him. But, but he's there in that moment. What is his dream now? Now, his dream is just to walk. It's what he's looking forward to. It's what he wants to, to have in his life. So if he can walk again, he can be the same person that he was before. And so what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, pick up your mat. Take your mat and what? And walk. Pick up your mat and walk. When I think about the dreams that you and I have, whether they're personal dreams or God-given dreams, there's one thing they're fueled by. They're fueled by hope. See, hope is this anticipation of something better. That you and I, when we dream, we're dreaming about, we're hoping for something bigger and better in our life. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's big. I I don't know. We all have our own personal dreams. It could be about you personally. It could be about your spiritual life. It could be about your your marriage, your, your family, your career. But all of us have these dreams, something that we're looking forward to. And you know what drives us? What fuels those dreams is hope, this anticipation of something better in our lives. What did the paralyzed man and his friends have? They had hope. And so, when these men brought this paralyzed man, they, they laid him on the ground. The only thing he had in that moment was hope. It was it. And here he is, he's lying on this, this mat. Think about this for a moment. This is home for him. This is the place he sleeps. This is the place he eats. This is probably the place that he is bathed on. It's probably the place he uses the restroom on. I mean, this, this is home. For this man. This is this is it for him because he's he's stuck. And in some ways there's hopelessness there. But Jesus jumps in and Jesus says, Hey, I want you to get up, you grab that mat, you put it under your arm, and I want you to walk out of here. This didn't hit me until the last couple of weeks working on this message about that mat. It's interesting to me because Jesus tells him to get his mat and take it with him why would Jesus do that I'm just hypothesizing here I feel like Jesus tells him to grab that mat put it underneath his arm and take off because Jesus wants to say hey that mat now is your past that's who you were That's, that's where you were you were stuck you were hopeless and guess what I did I brought you hope and you know what that mat that past that's your story now and so you get to tell that story. That is, that is who you are. In your hopelessness, you found hope in me. And you know what I did? I gave you hope. I gave you a future. I brought your dreams into reality. And now that's the story you get to tell the people around you about what I did for you. How many of us are laid out on that mat and we're stuck and we're hopeless and we're hurting and there's pain and you know what? We're paralyzed we don't get up. We're afraid to. We're afraid to take that step. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, I am your hope. Because that's what it is. Jesus is hope. Jesus is our hope. And in that moment, Jesus tells each one of us, here's what I want you to do. I want you to reach down, grab that mat, put it underneath your arm, and walk away. Because I'm your hope. But that mat, that is your past. That's who you were before me. That's what you did before me. Those are the decisions you made before me. But now I'm here. I am your hope. There's anticipation of something better, and that is me. Let me be your hope when you're stuck on that mat. when you are hopeless. Because Jesus gives us hope. And that mat, that past, you know what it does for us? That's our story. And we get to tell that story. This is where I've been. And this is how Jesus changed and transformed my life. Yet many times, we are, we're stuck in this constant state of hopelessness. Gerda Weissmann was born and lived in Poland. At the age of 15, uh, Poland was um, invaded by the Germans. At the age of 18, her parents were sent to Auschwitz, Uh, She and her sister were sent to the Dulag. At the age of 21, she was one of 4,000 women who were sent on a 350-mile death march from Germany to Czechoslovakia. And she was one of only 120 women who survived that trip. I I can't imagine, I can't even fathom the hopelessness in so many lives during that, that time period. But within that hopelessness, there was always hope. I want to show you an interview done with Gerda some years later as she, as she talks about that day and what happened when, when Hope came to visit. Take a look at this.
1: My very clear um, view of freedom and liberation came that morning when I stood in this doorway of that abandoned factory and I saw a car coming down the hill. And the reality of that came when I saw the white star on its hood and not the swastika. There were two men in that car. One jumped out.
2: I saw some skeletal figures uh, uh, trying to to get some water from a hand pump, but over on the other side, uh, uh, leaning Next to the against the wall, next to the entrance of the building, I saw a girl standing, and, and I decided to go walk up to her.
1: I remember that aura of in of that awe, of, of, of that disbelief in daylight to really see someone who fought for our freedom, for my ideals. And uh, he looked like like God to me.
2: And I asked her in German and in English whether she spoke either language, and she answered me in, in German.
1: And I, uh, I knew what I had to say. And I said to him, we are Jewish, you know, for a very long time. At least to me it seemed very long. But he didn't answer me. And then his own voice betrayed his emotion. He was wearing dark glasses. I couldn't see his eyes. He said, so am I.
2: I asked uh, about her companions.
1: He said, may I see the other ladies? A form of address we hadn't heard for six years. I told him most of the girls were inside. They were too ill to walk. And he said to me, won't you come with me? I didn't know what he meant. So he he held the door open for me and let me precede him. And that was the moment of restoration of humanity, of humaneness, dignity, of freedom.
2: We went inside the factory. Uh, It was an indescribable scene. Uh, There were women scattered over the floor on scraps of straw uh, some some of them quite obviously with a mark of death on their faces
1: I took him to see my friends
2: the girl who was my guide made sort of a sweeping gesture over this scene of devastation and said the following words noble be man merciful and good and I could hardly believe that she was able to summon a poem by the German poet Goethe, which was called, is called, The Divine, at, at such a moment, and there was nothing that she could have said that would have underscored the grim irony of the situation better than, than what she did.
1: And this first young American of Liberation Day is now my husband. He opened not only the door for me, but the door to my life and my future.
0: Here's a picture of Gerda and Kurt. They, uh, they did marry not too long after that. This is not right then when it happened, but of course, um, this is them. I think he passed away a few years ago. She received the Presidential Medal of Honor from President Obama back in 2010 for her work. But I can't imagine the hopelessness in those moments, can you? Where you wake up every morning and part of you is thinking, today's probably the day I'm gonna die. And maybe you wake up every morning thinking, Today, I hope, is the day I die, because I don't want to go through this anymore. And yet, in that kind of hopelessness, what do we find? We find hope. Gerda wrote these words in her memoir. says, I pray you never stand at any crossroads in your own lives. But if you do, if the darkness seems so total, if you think there's no way out, remember, never, ever give up. The darker the night, the brighter the dawn. In our dark nights, the dawn is always brighter. In our hopelessness, we need to understand that there is always hope. And those dreams that we have, they can become reality. If we're willing to get out of this paralyzed state we find ourselves in and to find our hope in Jesus and to follow Jesus. Let me give you next steps for today through this story. The first one is this. Some of us, we need to pick up our mat, put underneath our arms, and walk towards Jesus. We need to pick up our mat and walk. Jesus says, I I am your hope. I I am that better life for you. I I can help you live out those God-given dreams. But this is what it looks like. you got to get out of this unstuck place. you you got to let your past be just that. It's got to be your past. I'm here to bring you freedom. We talked about that last week. But I am your hope. I'm your hope, that anticipation of something better. Pick up that mat, put your past under your arm, and follow me. Well, that's your story. That's who you are. But you get to tell it now. And you get to tell how I changed your life. Because Jesus is hope. The second thing I would say, because of Jesus being our hope, that some of us need to not only pick up that mat, put it underneath our arms, some of us need to take that next step and be Baptized. We need to take that next step and say, I- I'm in, I'm in, I- I- I've been stuck, I- I've been paralyzed, I've been incapacitated, and now I'm ready to take those next steps towards reality, towards the hope that I can find only through Jesus. And maybe that's the place you're at. If it is, we'd love for you to let us know, because we'd love to, to, to experience with you the hope and freedom that we find through Jesus and baptism. If you have uh, never been baptized before, uh, we invite you to our baptism class. Uh, We're doing that next Sunday during our 11 a.m. service from 11 to 12. It's a great place to come. If you've got questions, if you're like, hey, I've been sprinkled, what is that? Does that count? Um, Hey, you know, I got baptized somewhere else. This is what happened. Does that count? Or you just have questions in general about baptism, we invite you to be a part of that. Again, you can go on your Journey Church app. Click on baptisms at the journey. You can sign up for that class there. On uh, Easter Sunday, April the 1st, we are inviting you to also be a part of our baptism day. Uh, we'd love to see people make that decision that day. I mean, there's no better a- example of hope than what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And so maybe you want to be baptized. So again, we, we ask you to mark that on uh, your app or you can fill, fill that out on your connection card and put that in the offering baskets here in just a little bit. But that's a big step. But again, that's that's Jesus being our hope. And then lastly, last week we asked you to start praying every day at 426 p.m. And I know some of you have been doing it. You've been telling me you've been doing it. If you're like me, your alarm goes off at 426 p.m. You're like, well, what, what's that alarm for? Am I supposed to wake up? It seems like it's strange, I'm awake, but but then you remember it's like, oh, I'm supposed to be praying. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to pray for this week as we go through this next week. If you weren't here last week, we invited everybody to set an alarm for 4.26 p.m. It's connected to John chapter 4, verse 26, when Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, I am He. And what we said is, I am He who sets you free. And so here's the things I want you to pray for. Pray for people to find hope in Jesus. And then secondly, I want you to pray for people to find hope through baptism. That they want to take that step to follow Jesus in that way. So we pray for people to be baptized. And then lastly, I want you to pray for the one person or the one family you're going to invite to Easter service. Uh, On your seats today, you have these yellow cards. They're invite cards. They're small. They're simple. You just got one. And all we're asking you to do is to take one of those and say, Hey, we've got Easter services. I'm going to be there at this particular service. Come hang out with me for the day. That's all you got to do. And so we're asking you to pray about that. I honestly believe if we as a church pray together like we're doing over the next few weeks, God's going to do even more amazing things than we can hope for or even imagine. Because Jesus is our hope. And when you feel stuck and paralyzed, when you feel incapacitated, when you can't get past your past, look, Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm your hope. I'm here to set you free. What I need you to do is take up your mat and follow me. Every Sunday, we come together at the Journey and we take communion as, as a church community, as a church family. And again, I can't think of anything that's, that better exemplifies hope than, than this moment when we take the bread and the juice, because it reminds us of the hope we have. And our hope comes from that empty tomb. And so when we're paralyzed, well, maybe we can remember the hope that fi- we find in that tomb. But when we're stuck, Maybe we can remember the hope we find in that empty tomb. When we're hopeless, maybe in that empty tomb, we can find all the hope that we need.